Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. I'm your host. Today, we have a special guest. My friend Tom Reedlinger is a licensed medical health counselor, writer, educator, and artist. And uh, he's working as an inpatient group therapist in Olympia, Washington. Uh, Tom has had a great interesting history of writing and research as a master's of theological studies and world religions from harvard and uh, he also worked worked as an ethnomycologist the harvard botanical museum which has got some really interesting connections into uh psychedelics he's written a lot on psychedelics uh, his book the sacred mushroom seeker and mortal refrains uh, and uh, many other articles, tons and tons of articles that uh, Tom has done on this topic. And I'm really interested in some of the work he has put together on uh, understanding spirituality and psychedelics and this uh, intersectionality of these topics. So we are really happy to make our acquaintance. Tom, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Peg, very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, well, I'll, uh, I'll tell a little of the story how I first connected kind of with you. Uh, I'd, I'd read, you know, some other things. I'd come across your name, but it was really the, the article that you did on Maria Sabina uh, and uh, Pentecost that I was down in Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, a number about a month ago, and I was reading your chapter, and it was just like this. I don't know. It, it felt like a deep spiritual experience for me. I mean, I'm in this place near where Maria Sabina was from, and I'm reading this article trying to wrestle with my own Christian background and some of the, the shame I have around that as an ordained minister, and yet trying to lean into this uh, new, beautiful connection with plant medicine as a way to renew my faith. And then I come across your work, and it just, I, I, the only word I can say is it ministered to me. It just connected with me. I was in tears writing, and I wrote you a letter in that moment, and I said, hi, I, I want to connect with you, Tom. You have something to teach me here, and your article on Maria Sabina was so powerful. So that's how I reached out to you, and we've got to know each other a little bit since. But uh, that's uh, thank you, Tom, for that piece. Maybe we'll start with that one. What Can you take us into that article, uh, and uh, what what was the impetus in writing that piece for you? Well, like uh, many of the articles I published, that was uh, actually originally a term paper in a course I'd taken, uh, in this case at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, my my student advisor there was Harvey Cox, and I took a couple courses with him. One was on Pentecostalism. So uh, he, he was very uh, receptive to uh, my paper, which uh, recounted the story of R. Gordon Wasson, who uh, was a banker, Wall Street banker. And uh, he was the person who uh, publicized that uh, to the West, Western world, through an article in Life magazine in 1957 that, uh, that Indians in Mexico, the Mazatecs specifically, were using uh, psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, in uh, healing rituals. He was... Uh, reportedly the first white outsider, he and his photographer friend, Alan Richardson, uh, who were invited to participate in one of these uh, sessions, which were always taking place at night called Veladas. And he um, publicized it in Life magazine. And that before that, uh, people in the West were completely unaware of psilocybin mushrooms. I mean, you have to speculate that over the years, some people ate them accidentally uh, had a psychedelic trip, but uh, it, there was hardly anything about that in the record. 
So once he, he in effect, left the, let the cat out of the bag, um, people started using uh, psychedelics. They became, I think at that point, even more, uh, more interested in LSD, which was only just becoming a uh, part of the public consciousness. And uh, so in effect, he really did trigger the psychedelic um, revolution, I guess you could say the first time around it. Uh, we're, we're now in, in the midst of what's called a psychedelic renaissance, but uh, Gordon Wasson uh, pretty much was responsible for that. I want to emphasize that uh, in addition to his uh, being accompanied by his photographer, uh, his wife, Valentina Wasson, uh, was also a, a, a partner in this. And she was a mycologist, wasn't she? No, she was a pediatrician. Oh, I thought she had deep knowledge of of mushrooms from Russia. She certainly did. She came from Russia. She okay. was a white Russian. And um, she met Gordon uh, at, I think, the uh, London School of Economics. And uh, they they were married, very devoted to one another. And uh, he he likes to tell the story, and I, I recounted in uh, Sacred Mushroom Pentecost, the article mm -hmm. you're, you're talking about, that uh, on their honeymoon in the Catskills in the uh, late 20s, 1920s, uh, they uh, they went for a walk in the woods, and she suddenly gave a cry, it turned out of joy, and dashed off the path and began plucking mushrooms off the forest floor. Uh, he was alarmed because his his uh, people came from England, and uh, he had a kind of a horror of mushrooms. He just stay away from them. Whereas she, coming from Russia, uh, loved mushrooms. She had a, a vast knowledge of uh, mushrooms, and she gathered up a bunch, brought them home. She said, I'll cook them up. And Gordon at first uh, said, well, you'll have to eat them alone. And then he worried he was going to wake up a widower, is how he tells it. But in fact, he ate the mushrooms, um, learned to also love mushrooms, but uh, they became very interested in the fact that they'd had these two very different reactions, which it turns out are, are, are somewhat correlate to regional reactions. So people from uh, Russia and uh, many of the uh, Eastern countries, uh, Eastern European countries love mushrooms, whereas people from in other uh, countries such as England uh, have uh, regard them with great suspicion, you know, if not revulsion. And they speculated that somewhere in the past, in their their common past, in ancient Europe, their uh, ancestors possibly used mushrooms um, uh, in some kind of ritual that they were, they, there was a religious awe about the use of mm -hmm. mushrooms. And that over the centuries that had degraded into these two uh, extreme forms of uh, attitude toward mushrooms. Mm. So they began to uh, research that. And uh, it, their research, uh, originally they were going to publish a book called Russia, Mushrooms and History that was a cookbook mm. about Russian cuisine. And But along the way, they uh, were alerted to the fact that apparently um, Mexican Indians were using mushrooms that were psychedelic. And they thought, that uh, could directly relate to their theory, the so-called. How, how did they hear about these, the Mazatec uh, indigenous people using these substances? Like what alerted them to make that trek to Oaxaca? Because it's not easy. It's not an easy trek. No, that's correct. Especially it's, not in the 1950s. Well, among their friends was the uh, poet Robert Graves. And uh, 
uh, Valentina, I'll call her Tina from this point on, Gordon always did, uh, communicated to him this interest they had in mushrooms and their, their suspicion that possibly there were mushrooms with psychoactive properties that had been used in the past. And he said, uh, he, he told Tina that he recalled having seen a footnote in a uh, pharmaceutical company uh, bulletin referencing some work by Richard Evans Schultes. Yes, right. Uh, who uh, famously was the uh, director of the Harvard Botanical Museum for many years. But uh, for his uh, graduate thesis, he had gone into Mexico and he was the first white outsider uh, to be invited to sit in on a session, mm -hmm. although he was not invited to take the mushrooms. So uh, he had written about that. He published a paper about it. The uh, paper, however, was published just at the beginning of World War II. And so it was largely overlooked. But somehow Robert Graves saw this and he passed it along to Tina. And then uh, she and Gordon began making trips to Oaxaca uh, in, a, in other parts of Mexico. That Oaxaca became their focus uh, in 1955. Wow. I think Gordon said he, he made a total of about 10 trips down there, but uh, it was in 19, uh, I'm sorry, I think they began in 53. In 1955, uh, he was invited with Alan Richardson to participate in the mushroom balada, and he experienced uh, the, the psychoactive property of psilocybin. Uh, the, what he wrote about it not only in... Um, this in an article for Life magazine that was published two years later in uh, 1957, but also it completely redirected a, a part of their uh, cookbook on mushrooms, mm, which became a two volume book. Uh, and much of it was about the history of mushrooms and uh, especially the, the uh, use by the Mazatex in Mexico. Can, so can, uh, that yeah, was published. That's, that's kind of how he got there, eh? Hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, now take me into the because I think the story that I, I around Maria Sabina and the actual, um, you know, the actual what happened and and kind of you make a very interesting, you know, connection. You start with your Harvey Cox reference. You're taking this course on Pentecostalism and you bring that intersection into this experience where you are contrasting this idea of a Christian understanding of experience as primal, that encountering the divine, this is the Acts 2 story, right, in the, the Christian narrative of the descent of the, the Holy Spirit being, you know, not the God up there in the sky, but the divine being come, being alive right here in us. Yes. You, you say that this is really, this Maria Sabina uh, experience with the entheogen mushroom is very similar to an Acts 2 kind of divine encounter. Can you help us make put that story together? Because you're not just pulling threads out of the air. You're actually drawing from Maria Sabina's Christianity, her use of the Jesus icons, her, her syncretistic religions that draw from... Christianity and this ancient healing entheogen. So start knitting this together for me, because I think a lot of people would say, what? How is Christianity part of this? Oh, yes. I, I'm sure many people say that. And also many people have uh, you know, antagonistic attitude toward Christianity. I think for, for those and some other reasons, that particular paper of mine that you're re referencing, Sacred Mushroom Pentecost, which was uh, published in um, 
in the book Entheogens and the Future of Religion, yeah, that's edited by Robert Forte. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. of all the articles I've written, that is one of the two I think I'm most proud of. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time working on it, and uh, it's well researched, and I said in it exactly what I meant. I think the word Pentecost or Pentecostal scares off a lot of people. Uh, some people assume in advance incorrectly that what I'm saying is that uh, uh, the, the uh, story of Maria Sabina and Gordon Lawson uh, uh, validates Pentecostalism specifically, or even Christianity specifically. That's not what I was saying. The point was that um, if you read Gordon Lawson's uh, more detailed account of his experience in Mexico in Mushrooms Russian History, you'll see a number of references that correspond to elements of the uh, Pentecostal story in Acts of the Apostles. And I uh, concluded that could not possibly have been coincidental because Watson had such a deep understanding of the Bible because of his upbringing. His father was an Episcopalian minister who um, had uh, apparently beloved by Gordon and his brother Thomas. And uh, he drilled them on Bible passages. Every, uh, every week they had to memorize more passages and recite the 10 passages they'd, they'd memorized before that. So he, he understood the Bible. He himself was uh, claimed to the end of his life to be Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. uh, but his writings about uh, this particular experience or, or others he had with Maria, uh, with the mushrooms, resonate with Christianity because it's a it's a it's a hybrid uh, uh, ritual I would say is, is the best way to describe it uh, let me back up a bit the uh, fact that the Indians there were using these mushrooms was known as far back as the time of the conquest right when the yeah. Spanish invaded and the, and the missionaries wrote about it but they had no understanding of what was going on with mm. these mushrooms and the rituals. The rituals weren't technically religious services. They were healing um, uh, rituals. And uh, Maria later said that until Gordon arrived there, nobody came looking for the mushrooms to find God. Mm. That was the, Gordon was the first to do that in her knowledge. Mostly they came and consulted the, the mushrooms as if an oracle. Uh, through a, a, a shaman such as Maria was, and uh, they, it was a healing ritual for the most part. Mm. Um, the uh, Over the year, the centuries, what seems to have happened is that before the Spanish arrived, the Indians were using these mushrooms in this fashion for uh, ritual healing. They, uh, the conquistadors tried to suppress it and the missionaries. So they, in effect, drove it underground. However, they did have an influence on um, the ritual, and it began to incorporate Christian elements. And uh, by the time Gordon arrived there, it was a well-established uh, Christian service, but it, it had these pagan elements still. Mm. Uh, it, it, and I believe that was an authentic, um, I guess you would say, symbiosis. Mm. The uh, Indians ac uh, acquired or in incorporated these uh, Christian elements 
And uh, right at the core of it was the ingestion of the mushrooms. Um, as you said, there's 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 not quite a liturgy involved with this, but uh, there is certain ritual structure. And it involves taking the mushrooms. It's in the dark. Uh, there's chanting that goes on for a very long time. Uh, outsiders often find it to be somewhat monotonous. And then at some point, uh, the uh, shaman leading the service begins to call down the spirit. Uh, in some some accounts, I see it's referred to as the Holy Ghost. In other cases, it's the Word. But it descends from a certain uh, point in the room where the service is being connect, uh, conducted. Mm. And in this case, it, it uh, came down to the left of an altar that had been set up in the front of the room where uh, Maria had uh, pictures of uh, Christian uh, import, a picture of Jesus, I think, and the River Jordan and so forth. Yeah, well, you, yeah, because you, you, I just want to jump in because you reference, uh, you know, John chapter three here, uh, mm -hmm. in in the article, and and you talk about, you quote it and saying, you know, what is born of the flesh is flesh, what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be ast astonished when I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses and hears the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone born of the spirit. And you talk about how Wasson in his writings introduces this concept that that Jesus is like the mushroom, that the that both embodies and proclaims the spirit. As such, it comprises an actual grace, which enables those who eat it to experience God's presence, his kingdom. This is quite a, you know, for Wasson to begin to draw from his Christianity, from yep. his father, and to be able to be in this ceremony with Maria Sabina and begin to see the connections right in front of him of this entheogen, uh, that this is no longer just a wafer and wine, but there was a real presence of the divine that he was feeling. I mean, right. that that must have been so profound for, for Wasson. Oh, I believe so. He, uh, he's, it makes this statement several times in different ways that uh, the the Christian in mainstream Christianity goes to church, they take the Eucharist, but they have to take on faith that they're connecting with God. Whereas he said, uh, the Indians in these services have a direct experience of the divine. And uh, I think he definitely recognized the relevance of that for Christianity. And that's not to rule out its relevance for any other form of religion, yeah. but he himself had a Christian background. I believe he doesn't actually go into this that much. He he tries to maintain a strict um, uh, ethnomycological perspective mm -hmm. on it. You know, he's a mycologist. He talks about the history. He told me personally that of all the books he published, the one he was proudest of was Maria Sabina and her Mazatec Mushroom Velada. Wow. Um, which is a series. He told of you that he told you that personally, eh? Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. That that tells you so much about how important that first experience must have been for him. And I, I, I would like to add, he said uh, that he was proudest of it, but so far as he could tell, it was completely ignored. Oh, wow. That's how I felt about my my paper, Sacred Mushroom Pentecost. And I hmm. I don't know if, the, if, if it's for the same reasons, but I was uh, so gratified when, when you read it and obviously connected with the point I was trying to make, mm -hmm. which was not that uh, my point was that there are just too many similarities between the experience Wasson had in Mexico the first time he took the mushroom and, and later, and the account of the so-called Pentecostal miracle in Acts. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and again, you can't really see that unless you're reading the the more detailed account in Mushrooms Russian History. If you read the other account that that uh, he that went public in Life Magazine, he doesn't um, he doesn't make so many allusions to that. Mm. You read that section about the wind, mm -hmm. and he that was one of the things he experienced that time with Maria. That at some point in the darkness, they suddenly felt a wind, and mm -hmm. none of the doors or windows were open, so it it, it wasn't clear where that was coming from. Mm -hmm. Um, he also, the, in the Pentecostal story in the Bible, it mentions tongues of, of fire that appeared above each person. He mentions at one point that when this wind rushes through the room, people turned on their uh, electric torches or flashlights. Mm. He could see the people in the darkness uh, for a short bit. And one of the things he saw was uh, the smile on the face of Maria Sabina, which was so different from the grave smile she normally wore. He said that he, he realized there was this tremendous sense of uh, communion or connectedness between all the people in the room, which he 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 associated with caritas. Uh, yeah. And he uh, and at some point during this uh, session, Maria reached over in the dark and took his hand. Mm -hmm. I would emphasize, he said there was, he did not detect any uh, erotic energy in this room it was all uh brotherhood it's the mm -hmm. term he used mm -hmm. and when she reached over and took his hand in the darkness he felt that she was reaching across the language barrier which of course is another key component in the pentecostal story in the bible right you have this multiple languages i mean to refresh people that have no you know don't know the story there's this story you know that the jesus has has kind of gone away and there's a descent of this story on the early followers of christ in this spiritual experience where the spirit comes down and they think you know people outsiders would say they, these people look drunk they look like it's in the middle of the day though and they look drunk this is kind of what they're they're and and yet they seem to be speaking different languages that they've never learned and yet right. there seems to be some kind of way of them connecting so you have the use of language of communication of the descent of a spirit of some kind of divine presence and then the key for me in this in your article is this is experiential. This is not about a belief to check off a box. This isn't about some another cognitive, you know, do you believe this or this? This is, have you had this experience? Have you had this encounter? That's a very different thing, right? You know, it's like, have you been to the, you know, game or not? It's not about, do you believe right. there's, it's a, it's a, you know, this is an invitation phenomenologically for me to have an encounter with the divine myself. That's what this is an invitation to, is the entheogen calls you in to say, why don't you encounter the divine yourself and make sense of that? It's a Absolutely. very, very interesting way to frame it. Right. And the, the relevance of, that, of sacred mushroom Pentecost was that this could have uh, an application to modern mainstream Christianity. Yeah, think, go there because I'm. I was going to read it, but what you tell oh, me? No, what's please, the, go what's ahead the, and read it, and I'll bounce there. Okay, yeah. So you you kind of move in. Uh, well, I'll I'll read two little sections because they. I, I think it's really important here. You um you were just kind of before the before the end. You were talking about um this is what the mushroom, according to Wasson, quote, express religion in its purest essence without intellectual content. 
You talk about, uh, in that sense, the Christian religion of the Mazatec mushroom eaters is defined, like Pentecostalism, not by doctrine or by dogma, but phenomenologically. Both religions are examples of the primary spirituality that Cox describes as reaching beyond the levels of creed and ceremony into the core of human religiousness, into the largely unprocessed nucleus of the psyche in which the uh, unending struggle for a sense of purpose and significance goes on. I think that's what people are longing for, not religion and dogma, but for this deep sense of purpose and significance. And uh, you you end this piece by saying, I mean, I had this, I mean, it just, I just have this big yes, yes, exclamation mark. I'm just going nuts at the end of this because it's connecting with me so much. You said right at the end, is it not feasible? This is your last line. Is it not feasible that modern Christianity could likewise adopt certain elements of this indigenous hybrid, producing an experiential form of Christian worship in the Pentecostal mode that uses entheogens? for calling down the spirit. Oh, I just stood up and was like, this is the revolution I want to be part of. A way of awakening a new form of historic Christianity that recognizes that entheogens have always been part of its history. And oh, yes. looking like, I mean, we could go off and Brian Murarescu is the immortality key who has come on the scene in the last few years Uh, And speaking at Harvard Divinity School himself, talking about the history of entheogens in Christian practice. And now he's getting, you know, archaeo evidence of scraping chalices in Spain and finding ergot mushroom, which is the basis of LSD that we also find at the Eleusinian Mysteries just outside of Athens that I was able to go and, and check out this summer and spent a day with an archaeologist exploring the Eleusian's mystery site there. So there's so much to talk about here as mushrooms, as a renaissance for a form of experiential Christianity. So make some comments on that. Yeah, let me say something about Brian's theory. Brian, uh, in his book, uh, The Immortality Key, uh, expounds on uh, uh, what's called the pagan continuity hypothesis. Um, He wasn't the first to propose it. He definitely was the first to go into such detail and to provide hard evidence. Uh, Will and Ariel Durant, famous historians, uh, made the comment in, I think, 1939 that the the Greek world, pagan world, as it died, kind of passed the torch on to Christianity. And that's the essence of Brian's argument, that Christianity initially... Uh, utilize psychoactive, some psychoactive substance. Uh, he speculates it was ergot-based, um, which is, of course, the uh, LSD is, is derived from ergot, but uh, it has to be processed a certain way. How they did it in ancient times, that's still an open question. I, I could talk about that in a minute, too. But um, he, what his argument is, uh, others in the past have argued that Jesus never existed as a real person in, in the world, uh, that Jesus, as uh, as recounted in, historic, in history in the Bible, was a metaphor for mushroom and so forth. I myself don't believe that. I think Jesus clearly lived. Um, however, I think it's very possible, as Brian argues, that the uh, the earliest Christians adopted uh the some of the um, techniques and rituals used by the pagans in their mystery religions, and those included uh, psychoactive substances. 
Uh, I think that within a relatively short amount of time, 100 years, 200 years at most, probably, the um, uh, they stopped using actual psycho psychoactive substances, and the church began to develop uh, dogma and doctrines and so forth to replace those. And we wound up where, as Wasson said, you have to take on faith this uh, experience that the earliest Christians probably were having directly. Right. I mean, isn't that, I mean, I just get, I mean, I I'll, I guess I go to my own life and I, I say, you know, I've always had this as since I was a child, very, very young, I, you know, the earliest times, maybe three, four, five, this longing for a connection with the divine, you know, and this is, yes, I did grow up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents were quite evangelical, religious, and went to church, and, uh, and uh, you know, my parents were missionaries, and so we traveled, and so that was part of my upbringing, but even pre that, I had this longing for a direct connection with the divine that has never gone away, mm -hmm. and even becoming an ordained minister in my 20s, I, I never felt like I was connecting. I always felt like there was a barrier between me and God somehow. Like even my prayers felt deaf and dead. And I mean, I, I, this is my most of my life. I was just trying to connect. And it wasn't until my very first uh, entheogen experience with the sacred mushroom that I finally had a direct experience with the divine where mm -hmm. it wasn't just like, uh, you know, it's as real as I'm talking to my partner, you know, or it's as real as you and I talking. It's not even a dream. It feels different. It's a, it's an emotional, deep experience of transformation. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to me. And so then I start looking around for explanation of what this is. And I start finding it throughout history. I start finding it in Christian mystics and I see it in R. Gordon Wasson who just like me was raised similarly. When you start talking about his dad quizzing him with Bible verses, that's what my life was growing up. Saturday night, I would have a bath and my dad would say, okay, what was the scripture you memorized this week? Let's recite it. And he would, and so I grew up just with all this scripture in me and yet mm -hmm. didn't have presence, didn't have connection. And yet I found it in this and I didn't know how to make sense of it. Instead, I started going through history and finding people that had direct encounters with the divine. And so here we are again, Wasson, you have this ancient con continuity, the pagan continuity hypothesis that said early Christians were using these practices uh, as they got it from Greece in Eleusis and other places that were using this spiked ergot based maybe wine, they called it the kukion, this substance that was given to them in at night in a communal way, you know, they'd say there was up to 5,000 people in the temple once a year in, in end of September to do this Ellicinian mysteries. Right. Uh, and it went not, it went, it, they conducted those ceremonies yearly, annually. As you yeah. Said. Every year wow. for 1500 years. Right. Actually close to 2000 years. It's incredible that we don't even know that we haven't been taught this Tom. Right. And well, uh, you know, it's been when uh, historians have looked at that and they say, so why was the secret never revealed? All, that many people had gone through the experience and nobody ever re recounted what was going on. Well, it's pointed out that you had to agree not to reveal the secret uh, under penalty of death. Mm. However, it's very hard for me to believe that in all that time with all those people that uh, somebody wasn't going to spill the secret unless the secret was what uh, the term would be ineffable mm. like many people who take a psychedelic especially higher doses 
find uh, that they would they try to express what happened, what they saw, they can't find words for it. And I think that that's one of the uh, supporting proofs, call it a proof or an argument for the idea that the Kukion uh, was uh, uh, psychoactive and quite possibly based on ergot. I published a paper called Polydamnus Drug, uh, the uh, Egyptian beer and the uh, Kukion of Eleusis. And it was speculative. The point was there was a certain method they used in ancient Egypt to brew beer. And I realized that if uh, the beer were infested with ergot and they used this, this method, there was a good chance that you could have uh, rendered the, uh, the ergot safe to ingest because it's mm -hmm. famously deadly at a high enough dose, ergot. Ergot poisoning, uh, there's stories of it uh, throughout history in Europe. Mm -hmm. Old villages, you know, uh, if their uh, grain supply got infested with ergot, which grows, by the way, on rye and barley and so forth, they uh, there there were people dying of gangrene. Uh, they were, you know, delirious and so forth. So, so some method must have been used to uh, render the uh, ergot uh, safe while at the same time maintaining its psychoactivity. So I, I published that paper. I, I ran it by Elf, uh, by Albert Hoffman. Oh, yeah, because Ho Hoffman and Wasson also journeyed to, uh, I mean, they, they journeyed to Athens and Eleusis and I think to, uh, to Oaxaca. Right. And uh, yeah. he, he said that he thought that uh, that theory I proposed may very well have been uh, effective. Mm. Uh, he was hesitant to endorse any particular theory in the absence of hard evidence. So mm. once again... Um, I'm I'm glad that somebody like Brian is on the case He's picking this up. Like you, just even the the fact that you can reference that, Tom, just makes me so excited that you're like, oh yeah, I talked to Wasson, I talked to uh, Hoffman, I ran this theory by him. It's like that's so cool that you were still close enough that there's you know uh, elders like you that have had firsthand experience with some of these early uh, psychonauts and these these explorers, uh, the ones who have really brought psychedelics back into uh, kind of the mainstay uh, of, of intellectual, you know, discovery in the last, in the last 50, 60 years. Like that's part of your lineage. That's really cool, Tom. Uh, you know, some of the comments you made earlier reminded me that uh, when I last, I think it was when I last saw Gordon Watson, which was about a month before he died. Um, we were talking about the, um, the, the situation with psychedelics. They've been made illegal and uh, the research on uh, psychedelics was suppressed. Uh, before that happened, I think an estimated 10 million people in the United States alone had experienced some psychedelic or other. Uh, but at that time, and it was in 1985 or 80, I think it was 85 or 86, Gordon said that, uh, told me that he thought that they would become popular again, psychedelics, mushrooms and psychedelics generally, in, uh, I think he said, 10 to 20 years, 30 years at most. And the reason they weren't just then wasn't just the legal suppression. It was because, as he said, quote, people don't want to be awed these days. Ah, interesting. And wow. uh, as it turned out, um, it was, pro I guess you could, you could probably trace the so-called psychedelic renaissance to the publication in 2005, I think it was, of uh, a study 
done by uh, Roland Griffiths and I think Bill Richards. Yeah. Uh, in which they uh, told of giving um, fully informed participants psilocybin, and they had overwhelmingly reported that the experience was one of the most significant experiences mm. in their lives. And at least a third of them said it was a profoundly religious experience. Mm. So here we were, scientists publishing a scientific study, and they're introducing the, the idea that religion and spirituality mm. is, is part of the effect of the, of the mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah. that's held up in later studies as well. Yeah. It's not that they, uh, the religiosity or the religious or spiritual experience evoked by the mushrooms is particular uh, to any one religious denomination. It's not specifically Christian or Muslim uh, or Jewish, but um, it, I think it has relevance to all those uh, forms of, of religion. Yeah, and I think that's, um, you know, I remember reading that, that study um, I think that was with uh, end of life cancer patients, if I if I remember, mm. and uh, I, I remember being uh, you know having that in my background when uh, when my good friend Lori Brooks uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, and she was given kind of six months to live, and I along with a, a colleague of mine said. Lori, would you be willing to read this article uh, and, you know, by, by, by Roland Griffiths and, and look at this study, they're using a psychedelic to help people with end of life kind of distress. And she said, okay, and kind of looked into it and we talked about it. And we said, we think there could not only be in a way to deal with your anxiety, but I think it can actually be a deep spiritual experience for you. Um, and so she let us, that's what kind of, provoked the idea of Dosed, uh, The Trip of a Lifetime, the film uh, that we were able to produce. And so I, I filmed her both before and after, and then, uh, and then the, her story unfolded as a transformative experience happened for her. And it really changed her marriage, her family, uh, her relationship to cancer. Uh, and I can say now, you know, four or five years later, not only is she, you know, not, not, not dying of cancer, she's actually thriving and her tumor continues to shrink. And, and her, her doctors don't understand how this is possible. But, you know, um, she, she sits with, with people like Gabor Matei and Gabor Matei says with her in the film, it doesn't shock me at all. You've changed your relationship with your body and with pain. You no longer are fighting cancer. You have this sense of openness and trust. And if you're giving your body the best chance it's going to have, if it's going to do that, you no longer live in fear. And, and so, you know, we, we were able to do this film and we're really excited on how well it's done. And it's been seen in over a hundred countries now. And I think it's a really beautiful, accessible well, story for the public. Well, I've seen it and I, I want to give it a, a sincere shout out. It's an amazing movie. Uh, Laurie is, a, she's the perfect um, advocate. I mean, she's entirely believable. She's a sympathetic uh, situation. And I think that the film the pace of the film, the production values, everything, they're, they're, you really have a sense that the information is being uh, received by the viewer directly. It's not manipulated. Uh, I, I've recommended it already to a number of my friends and professional colleagues. So uh, let me let me tell you, kudos to wow. you for being you. part of the pro, uh, production. Yeah. Team. yeah. Well, thank you. No, it's been a it's been a beautiful, uh, you know, 
story to be part of and brought in uh, Nick and Tyler, the, the directors that really helped give it the, the, the gravitas that it really needed. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, we're, huh, I mean, in the next few days, we'll find out if it's shortlisted for an Academy Award. We've hey, applied. Hey. Yeah. So, I mean, out of 12,000 get, that get uh, submitted, they, they brought it down to 110 documentary films that they would consider watching as the Academy. And ours is one of them. So, to know that someone from the Academy is actually going to watch this film is pretty exciting and who knows what's going to happen. But we, we were just, we knew this story was important and no matter what happens uh, it's an important way for people to, if they've never, I mean, that's why I think it's a nice a starting place for a lot of people. You, you can go, mm -hmm. this is, this is a, a lady, mother of four who has never done, you know, any kind of drugs, doesn't really drink much is just an average kind of normal kind of Canadian, you know, and she has this profound experience on, on psychedelics that transforms her entire life. And it's like, you watch that unfold and you're like, okay, we've got to make, this is the Pentecost story that you're talking about with Maria Sabina. This mm -hmm. is the acts two moment of profound shift in people's lives. that's possible through this entheogen. And how can you not be transformed when you watch it up close? I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in Lori's. We now, my wife and I are part of an organization that works with groups to experience this in a group container called Gathering. So I've been up close to well over 300 experiences. And to see this kind of transformation in community, this is profound. And this is what our planet needs right now. I, I'm a great believer in and and focusing on group experience with psychedelics. I mean, uh, obviously they're they're useful uh, in individual cases. Although I always recommend somebody have a sitter on hand, even if they're taking it uh, by themselves. But the 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 group model I think has the most promise. Mm -hmm. And historically, I mean, the indigenous societies that use psychedelics, they're always group experiences. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the the Tech mushroom velada Wasson uh, attended those were group experiences. When I I went to Harvard Divinity School from nineteen ninety three to ninety six, and while there I and some friends uh, became interested in uh, exploring the question of whether uh, because set and setting is so crucial mm. to the outcome of a psychedelic uh, session everybody knows that by now. Uh, we were wondering if. Um, creating a liturgy uh, mm. uh, or at least some kind of ritual structure might uh, facilitate the, the, the uh, mystical experience or spiritual insight. And so we, uh, we got involved through Tom Roberts. He, he uh, actually put us up for it uh, as uh, we, we were uh, in effect commissioned, not paid for it, but uh, tasked, I should say, to create a, a, a service at the Vellambrosa conference in California, uh, which was the basis for um, uh, psychedelics and spirituality. Right. Another book. great book, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can get that one out here. Yeah, that's in effect the proceedings of that mm -hmm. uh, meeting. But uh, we were tasked to create what we wound up calling an uh, entheogen compatible ecumenical service. Whoa. Okay. Uh, which, okay, walk me through this. This is exactly yeah, it, what I'm working on right now, Tom. Literally this week, I've been working on this structure of how can we create an ecumenical, 
open spiritual liturgy that we can do in these group experiences. So what did you discover? What did you create? Well, we, uh, we, we did a test run first. A, a group of several of us at the Divinity School uh, had a, a we, it, this has actually been written about before. We, we named it the Harvard Agape. Hmm. And um, we uh, created a liturgy for it. Um, uh, and we, we followed it. We, we, well, for instance, people brought in personal items, which we set on an altar. And we, uh, many people brought in photos of people, loved ones, and so forth. And then we, uh, we read um, from uh, re religious uh, books from the different religious traditions. We, we spoke about our own um, kind of a Quaker service quality about it. You know, we, we spoke about things that were personally meaningful to us uh, spiritually or in terms of emotional uh, issues going on within our life. And uh, it was it was quite effective, but I still didn't feel it was likely any more effective than any group of people taking psychedelics together. It was more structured. And so we uh, sort of leveraged off of that in developing the service that took place at Vellambrosa. Uh, the um, service was, it was very successful. Started out quietly uh, with, uh, we, we addressed the four directions mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and the, the world pole in effect, uh, using a, a poem, as I recall, by Ralph Metzner. Mm -hmm. And um, it built up from there. All the people who came in were invited to set things on the altar. Uh, we had a liturgy established. It culminated in um, music. There was quiet music throughout most, much of it. Uh, I remember uh, Bill Richards speaking very movingly about um, Walter Pankey, who was mm -hmm. one of the original investigators of psychedelics and spirituality. And uh, at the end, there was it, it, it kind of evolved into a, a, a dance festival mm. and uh, was a, extremely successful. Ann Shulgin was there. Uh, Sasha Shulgin was there. Uh, Houston Smith was, was there. He, he could really dance, even at his age. I remember that. But uh, Ann Shulgin commented that that was the most meaningful or powerful um, psychedelic group experience she had been to. Um, and an, uh, can we just stop? Like, that's an amazing statement to make from a person who has had a lifetime of doing, you know, altered state experiences for yes. her to say this group container that was focused around ecumenical spiritual ritual became one of the deepest experiences for her. That's unbelievable. Well, the, the various readings that uh, were part of this uh, were from the various religious traditions. And uh, Ralph Metzner's uh, poem about uh, the, the directions was definitely from Native American uh, influence. So it was entirely successful. Wow. Uh, however, yeah. uh, as much as it, we, we had to do a lot of this um, kind of undercover, mm -hmm. uh, I was personally worried that if the uh, Harvard found out about us doing these things, it might affect my ability to get um, uh, funding for my continued education there. So I had to be circumspect. Uh, at that conference, by the way, I was on a panel about, uh, regarding the so-called Good Friday experiment, okay. 
which was the basis of uh, Walter Pankey's doctoral thesis. And um, I uh, presented, uh, I, I told the tale of, of a Harvard Divinity School student returning to the site of that uh, experiment, Marsh Chapel at Boston University campus. But I, I related it in the third person as if it weren't me. It, mm -hmm. it definitely was, I think, transparently so. But we had to be somewhat careful, and yet it this was clearly became part of, of some record, I don't know. But I've never had anybody at the Divinity School express any interest in that work we were doing there. Wow. But I mean, think about the names were around that that in that experience. It's a really it's an amazing collection of uh of people that have had deep experiences both in the spiritual realm and 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 in psychedelics and to bring them all together would have been an incredible moment for you i guess i want to just pivot for a second tom um what for you have been some of the learnings uh and insights that you have gained from your own experiences of encountering the divine through entheogens uh, I'll answer that question, but let me just mention one person who has expressed an interest in the work we were doing mm -hmm. at the Div School is Brian Murruska. Okay. So I, I've given him all the information I yeah. had, including some that's still private mm. about oh. it. But uh, the, the, the school authorities themselves haven't expressed Explored that eh? so far. Okay. Well, I, I look forward to what Brian is up to, and I know he is uh, such, a, uh, such an innovative thinker. Oh progressive mind and yes. so so um i say to people this book is just it reads like a beautiful tale of what's happening next it's a page turner oh, of I, a journey but i can't it's wait also, to see what he's coming up yes, with <laughs> me too i'm like i'm on the edge of my seat on what you know and I've, I've heard i've heard some rumble i i, I know that he's uh was that was that burning man this year in the mud and <laughs> Had some friends that were there and, and connected with him. So I, I know that there's some really interesting uh, stuff that's coming from him. But yeah, do you mind turning it to the your bit of your heart stuff for you, Tom? Um, well, I mentioned I, um, let's see, let, let me go back to this. I, uh, I, I didn't do so well in school. Hmm. I, I attended a Catholic uh, high school for one year, freshman year. And it was uh, somewhat transformative for me, the, the, the class in theology, because I'd been raised in the Catholic Church, and um, uh, we learned the Baltimore Catechism, which is a series of, of uh, rote responses to particular questions, like, who made me? God made me. Why did God make you? And so forth. So when I got to Fenwick, uh, it, it's a, it was run by Dominicans, a very... Uh, very intellectual approach to religion. At that time, it was an all-boys school. And uh, in the theology class, the teacher started by asking a priest, a Dominican priest. He asked us, who made you? And we said, well, God made us. And, and he went through the Baltimore catechism questions. And then he said, uh, he got to a point where he said, and God is this perfect being, right, and immutable. And so he said, how does God feel when you commit a sin? I said, oh, he, he doesn't feel good about it. He, he's angry or he's sad. And he said, okay, so is it better to be sad uh, or uh, not sad or eternally happy? He said, well, eternally happy. And he said, okay, then who sits in for God, the perfect being, when he's sad with you or mad at you because of your sins? And we, well, I don't know. <laughs> we started to get the idea of what would a perfect being actually be like. And um, I think that... Uh, 
the, the, the next stage for me in my psychedelic journey was uh, in March of uh, 1996, um, excuse, 1966, um, there, I, I experienced, we had a fire in my home that I was living in. I was, um, at that time, uh, that was, uh, I was in junior year and uh, we had a fire. Uh, my sister was killed in it. Holy cow. Uh, yeah, and my, and my infant sister. I injured my back uh, leaping from a second story window. My my mother was very badly harmed leaping from a window. She she landed on a driveway, concrete driveway. So it was it was really quite a catastrophe for the family. And I remember having thought through at that point that how could there be a perfect god who has the power to create a perfect universe with no evil or suffering in it? And um and the will, presumably, if, if God is good, and yet evil and suffering exist, such as I had just experienced then. And it actually, I think, tipped me into being um, at least a practical atheist. Mm. I, uh, but it also kindled my interest in theodicy, that, that particular question of how could an all-perfect and uh, uh, all-good and all-powerful God allow evil and suffering to exist? Mm. Um at, at any rate, for one reason or another, I, I'll, I'll jump ahead. I did not do well in high school. I graduated near the bottom of my class. And uh, rather than seeing go, uh, go, that I had an option to go on to college, I felt I had no choice but to join the military. This was in 1968. Wow. So I joined the Air Force, uh, where I was for four years. And while in the Air Force, um, I, I, I was assigned to the Defense Language Institute at one point, uh, taking a 37-week course in North Vietnamese. Oh, my. And uh, we, we got leave at Christmas, and I returned home and ran into a dear friend of mine who had gone on to college, and we got into a discussion about uh, LSD. And I pointed out to him that only a, a couple of weeks after that fire that I'd had in my house, I came across a copy of Life magazine that had been issued on, uh, I think, March 25th, uh, and the fire took place the next day. And it was the cover story was about LSD. Interestingly, I've since heard that others uh, found themselves on a path towards psychedelics after reading that same issue. Robert Forty was one, Bob Forty. But the cover was uh, uh, full of negative connotations the title of uh, on the cover the main title was the exploding threat of the mind drug that got out of control lsd and it was subtitled on the cover turmoil in a capsule one dose of lsd is enough to set off a mental riot of vivid colors and insights or of terror and convulsions so by my count there's six or seven uh, negatives in there or alarms if you will it, there's seven if you count exploding threat as two terms, but the story, the article itself was riveting to me. After reading it, and then later reading other accounts in newspapers and magazines, I could not decide if LSD was um, the, a, a a very valid and important and powerful path towards spiritual enlightenment, or was it? Um, a, a dangerous mental poison or something like that. I didn't seem to read much in between. Now that wasn't true of say uh, marijuana. 
and uh, marijuana, it seemed like there was a lot of uh, accounts in between. And therefore, I never had an interest in trying. I didn't, I never smoked marijuana till years after I took LSD. And I found I didn't like it because it puts me to sleep. By the way. Mm -hmm. But the LSD, I had returned uh, while, while attending the language school. And I was still in the Air Force. I returned home to the Chicago area in December of uh, 68. And my friend who had gone out of college turned, uh, discussed his experiences, including having taken LSD. And I told him that because I couldn't uh, make a decision about what the effects were, I would be interested in taking it if I had someone available. And he reached into his vault and he, and he pulled out a tablet. And uh, he said, uh, well, here, I've got some right here. And it was called Blue Chair. They, they nicknamed the different forms yeah. of it. And uh, he said, you can take it if you'd like. I'll, I'll, I'll be your sitter. And I said, okay. And he said, uh, by the way, that's a two-way hit. He said, you know what that means? And I didn't, but I didn't want to seem stupid. So I said, uh, yeah. I thought it meant you got a body rush and a head rush or something like that. What it meant is it was a double dose. Uh, okay. And uh, Blue Cheer was uh, uh, famously powerful enough to begin with. So a, a, a normal dose of LSD, standard optimal dose, probably around 150 micrograms. Uh, this was probably at least 250 micrograms times two. Oh, so, my. Yeah, my my uh, friend of mine who would know about these things said I probably took a dose between 300 and 700 micrograms. Oh, my goodness, dude. Yeah, and, but it was an amazing So, experience. yeah, take me into the story. What happened on this first experience? Well, I, uh, a friend of ours uh, had a car that she uh, that, for, that her parents allowed her to drive. She drove me around. I was sitting in the back seat with my friend Mike, and my uh, then girlfriend was also in the front seat. And we just drove around the Chicago area. Well, uh, I went into this trip, and uh, I talked a lot, probably too much. I think it was getting to the people in the front seat. But my friend Mike was very attentive. He was a very active listener, and I remember among other things that we at one point we turned on to. Uh, Lakeshore Drive, which is famously known as LSD, very appropriate. And it was in the midst of a snowstorm, and I was uh, watching the cars ahead of us, the red tail lights, because of what we call trails. When you're on mm -hmm. uh, kind of a time lapse effect, it looked they looked like comets going ahead, and the whirling snow looked like sparks flying off. So it, there, there was a lot of that kind of thing, the aesthetic uh, experience. But at the peak of it. I kind of closed my eyes and I went in and I thought I saw the uh, the moment of creation. Mm -hmm. It was as if there was a void and I guess that's occupied by God, but there was no differentiation of any kind. And then there was a membrane of some kind that appeared and it was as if the void pressed into the membrane as if it were fingers. And so you have these projections on the other side and the projections related to one another as individuals, but they were grounded in this oneness on the other side. Um, many years later at Div School, I read one of the uh, Nag Hammadi tractates uh, on the origin of the world, I think it was, and it sounded exactly like that, that the uh, the membrane was in effect Sophia or, or wisdom. And, uh, and then here we are on this side, 
apparently multiple personalities, individuals and so forth, but grounded in this oneness. And of course, since then, I've learned that that's, that's an old idea. Uh, Aldous Huxley published a whole book on it, The Perennial Philosophy. William James talked about it. But uh, that was, it, it was a profound effect on me. It didn't entirely, I didn't entirely overcome my practical atheism, but I found myself more open to the idea of religion. And ultimately, in subsequent years, I, I read uh, William James's Varieties of Religious Experience. And that alerted me to the fact, or made me aware of the fact, that you don't have to approach religion only as a, uh, with the question of whether it's metaphysically true, but it's a psychological phenomenon. Not only a psychological phenomenon, in my, in my view, but um, that was the angle of approach that interested me most as I uh, continued on. I got uh, I returned to school. I got a bachelor's degree in psychology at Northwestern. Uh, I overcame my the early deficit of my uh, high school education. And uh, then when I, I, I published a book about R. Gordon Wasson, The Sacred Mushroom Seeker, with uh, help from Richard Evans Schultes at the Botanical Museum, and uh, Dick arranged for me to get appointed an associate in ethnomycology at Harvard Botanical Museum. So the stage was set. I had an, an avenue approach. I had been working at that point for about 13 years as a trade magazine or industrial magazine editor. And I uh, quit that job and I went out to Boston, uh, got into, eventually went to the Div School um, and uh, that the rest is history, I guess you'd say. Wow. So I, during that period, after that first experience in the Air Force, I took um, psychedelics hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. Usually my preference was for what we call concert doses now, mm -hmm. more like 80 to 90 micrograms. But I, I, I still haven't tried microdosing. That's, that's mm -hmm. far less. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and you know, I like anyone who's uh, taken psychedelics a number of times, I've had some so supposedly, quote, bad, unquote, experiences. But uh, experienced users will tell you that a bad experience is a good experience. It's a can it's useful. A, it can be learn, you can learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You gain insight from it. And if you uh, aren't scared off or if you're well, your trip can't be terminated too abruptly. Mm -hmm. Some people are having a bad trip on LSD have been given Thorazine in the past. It pulls them right out of it, but it, it also uh, prevents them from uh, processing and resolving right. the experience. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've always been a true believer ever since that first time in 1968. Yeah, that's a, you know, and now to, to, to fast forward, you know, 50 years, you know, of, of your life and your research. And I mean, to, uh, to find yourself now working in, in these, in these beautiful area in a hospital where you're working with people with, with challenging mental health challenges, I'm sure that you can, could dream of a future where these substances are legal and accessible to physicians and therapists as tools to help people process trauma, to help them navigate these interior spaces so that they can kind of wake up and recognize who they really are. Like, tell me about that kind of tension as you're now, you know, in the, the tail end of your career, but you're seeing this renaissance of these substances that you encountered early right. on in your life. So how do you, how do you navigate those those longings inside you now? 
Well, well, let me mention that I, I first began working in inpatient psychiatry units when I was going to school at Harvard. Uh, I I worked at uh, I needed part time work and so I um, began working as a mental health tech uh, or specialist at the Cambridge Hospital just down the street from Harvard and uh, I, I worked there for about two and a half years and um, I wound up actually working just about full time you know taking on when there were openings uh, and. Um, I uh, completed my degree in uh, my theological studies degree in world religions also, and I would say with a um, uh, minor in uh, pastoral studies. I took courses relating to the psychology of religion or psychological matters. And uh, I found when I finished school, during which time I should emphasize, I, I met my, my current wife, Beverly who was also going to the Div school. I met her about a week or two after the Vellambrosa conference. And uh, we, we'd gotten into a discussion and she asked me if I'd ever heard of Walter Pankey. And I said, <laughs> I, oh, I have just I? got back from a conference where I was, I gave a talk about Walter Pankey. So uh, we, we began working together. We gave a talk at Harvard on theodicy. I mentioned that had been an interest of mine. We gave a talk together at Harvard uh, called "Is Life Worth Dying?" Wow! And uh, it was about uh, trying to find a, a solution to the so-called uh, the Odyssey dilemma. And then we've gone on together. We uh, we we shared. A, we went to an ayahuasca experience together around 2000, which for me was probably the most profound religious experience really? of my life. Uh, was and, it in a Santo Daime context or in a traditional? Yes. Yeah, it was, I think it was Santo Daime, not the other, not the UDV. Okay. And um, I got the sense at that ceremony, at which there were many people, there were at least two dozen, I think maybe closer to three dozen people. Mm. And uh, I had a feeling that I was experiencing what it must have been like in the very earliest Christian times. Mm. And this was before there was any, uh, I was aware of any speculation that the earliest Christians might have used psychedelics, uh, but it's it was quite remarkable. That's another story, mm. I guess. Um, well, I'm kind of intrigued. Can you give me a little nugget because that really connects with me? Yeah, the uh, there there's a uh, ritual structure to it. I'm not sure I'd call it liturgical, but uh, of course there's a uh, padrone who uh, conducts the ceremony, uh, has some assistants, singers, for instance, and. Um, the uh, there was uh, and there's a constant admonition every once in a while that the group stops people kind of fan out do their own thing they're they're going into their own minds they're engaging in my case engaged with my ancestors which was a surprise mm. and um, uh, and but they keep but then we get keep getting pulled back together and told to remember who you are remember what you came here for things like that. And I just had this sense of my head leaning forward and being in the company of like-minded people, but not, not oppressed by doctrine and dogma. It was, uh, it was that, uh, the, the quote you read earlier about the phenomenological core mm. of religion, it was really there. That's what I got out of that. I think I might've gotten a similar experience, uh, from psilocybin if I had been, uh, involved, um, in a different kind of group ritual than the ones I had experienced up to that point. 
And by the way, I, I want to talk about your group gathering because that yeah. that seems most consonant with what I'm talking about here. I'm very impressed with what you're doing. That seems to be a an excellent uh, way to prepare people for a group session uh, and maximize the effectiveness of it, especially the uh, the effect of drawing people together, making connection. Yeah, yeah. Because connection is yeah. what everybody's yearning for. Yeah. I I've uh, after leaving Harvard, I came to Olympia, Washington, and I started working in the psychiatric unit here at the local hospital. And expected that to be a transitional job, but I've been working in the same unit now for 28 years. And 28 starting in years. Wow. Yeah. By the way, such a beautiful, I just want to stop, Tom, in that moment. The, the kind of, the consistency of showing up in a place like that that's really difficult is such a beautiful legacy that you've, you know, like this is your legacy that you showed up in this unit for 28 years working with people that who have deep, deep pain in their life. That's mm -hmm. just such an honor to, to sit with a person like you that has worked in those dark places with people, helping them see light. Well, thank you. I, obviously, I, I, I think it should be evident. I learned so much from the patients as well. Uh, it's a, an acute care, short-term unit. Uh, average length of stay is seven to 10 days. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's a, it's currently an 18-bed unit. It started out as 26. Mm -hmm. um, but I've, uh, over the years, I wanna, I'm, I'm a group therapist there as well as uh, I work with social services. And um, I've not been able, of course, to speak openly about psychedelics with the patients for various reasons, but uh, I also, uh, I've talked to my coworkers mm. and there's reactions have been mixed. Some are interested in it, mm. some are skeptical. It seems the psychiatrists so far have been the most skeptical of it mm. for whatever reason. Um, although they're all, I have enormous respect for the particular ones I've been working with here. Mm. Uh, I would mention one other thing. When I left divinity school, my intention was to go into private practice and. Uh, focus on uh, diversity issues, especially religious diversity. I wanted to deal with one-to-one uh, uh, -one with people who were having religious conflict, who were uh, trying to reconcile with their own faith, the journeys, you know, with their past. Uh, uh, but I found out very, very quickly in the inpatient psychiatry unit that you really can't bring a religion up in a group setting. Um, I've been running a Yalom group uh, a cognitive therapy group, process group is what it's called, for all the time I've been there. And um, it, if somebody at any point brings up uh, religion, somebody else is going to say, I hate religion. Um, you know, look what the Catholic Church did to me. And somebody else will say, yeah, where's God when I need God? There's no God. It would seem like a, a good opportunity to get into a discussion about that, but it, there's not enough time to fully resolve these issues, and we, we just can't do it. We do have chaplains who come in. My wife, Beverly, was a chaplain at, at that hospital for many, many years, and she, she just retired last year. But um, she uh, one of her assignments, prime assignments, was our psych unit, so we worked together there. And that's that's always available to the patients, and it, it does much good. But yeah, no, it's been um, that that I've realized long since it's not going to be the place that I can explore further the question of using psychedelics for therapy in groups. But 
my feeling is groups are that that's where it's at for the future. Oh man, Tom, I would love to have you in one of our gathering groups. I think you'd bring such beauty and uh, uh, insight and just to have you journey with a group of people. We've had, uh, we have people from all over the United States to sign up because, you know, the beauty of this technology is that you can do all of this prep. Uh, we, we prep for eight weeks uh, as a, as a group. Uh, and with two facilitators and this is all done online and then they show up in person here just outside of Vancouver at our retreat center and we have a, a weekend together or sometimes it's just a day and a night and then they go back uh, and fly back to wherever and then they integrate back in that group and the group actually ends up staying together even after the 12 weeks. Oh, I'm not I'm not at you all. Yeah. It's now they've got these uh, lifelong friendships of a place they can lean. Uh, and there's the power dynamic in kind of typical therapy is broken by this model because yeah. they relate to each other and they attach to each other. Mm -hmm. And so there's deep attachment that happens and support as this, uh, this group of what have, would have been uh, strangers at, in the beginning become I, really connected. Yeah, I'd like to call, uh, refer you to... Uh... Timothy Leary's earliest work mm. in psychology. I mean, um, even before psychedelics, but um, uh, I knew Tim, we, we co-published some things. Mm. Um, one of the things, I, I, when I was uh, at Harvard, I had uh, unrestricted access to uh, Gordon Wasson's archives, which were at the Botanical Museum. And among the other things I found, there was a, a paper that Tim Leary had written, but was never published hmm. about this early work he was doing. Okay. And um, I contacted him and said, well, see if we can get this published. And it was published in the, uh, the Journal of Humanistic Psychology. Okay. I then organized a panel discussion with Tim and some of his students uh, from his days at Harvard at uh, an annual conference of the Association for Humanistic Psychology. Uh, in 1993, I think it was, which was fascinating. But the point was, what made me think of it, from what you were saying, is Tim was emphasizing, he, he started out focusing on diagnostic tools mm. for psychology. And his intention was to try and develop some method of diagnosis that, that wasn't dependent entirely on the people at the top of the pyramid, the psychiatrists, for instance, or the PhD psychologists that could involve uh, mental health techs more uh, as part of a team. But he, uh, in this paper that uh, we published um, in the, in the uh, panel discussion that I coordinated here, the emphasis was on the fact that the therapist had to get out of the ivory tower mm. because it was the patient who was having the problem out there in their life, which he, he used the metaphor of a playing field, like in a sport. Mm. And he said, if the patient's went out there taking the hits, you can be a coach, but don't confuse that with the, the, who, who the real personality is out there having problems and needing, trying to find solutions. So you basically, you help people find solutions within themselves. Yeah. Sounds like that's very much what you're yeah, doing. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's, it's so under, it hasn't been studied yet, you know, and I, I, I've come across one, I think one uh, research article on psilocybin in groups for some AIDS patients, I think it was early nineties. Ah. Um, and mm. that's the only published piece that I've seen on actually group psilocybin experiences mm -hmm. ever. And I mean, it's shocking, right? So, I mean, we've just been awarded a clinical trial with Health Canada to work with a group program like this 
with first responders. And so we are going to be taking, you know, first responders through this 12 week protocol, firefighters, police officers in a legal health Canada approved study. And they're going to be looking at, you know, obviously efficacy on in, you know, diminishment of PTSD, depression, anxiety scores, a whole host of things they're looking at. Uh, and, um, you know, what I'm most excited about is, is the power of the actual group itself. That's the medicine I'm finding. The psilocybin mm-hmm. comes along as an amplifier of the connection and, uh, and, and kind of authenticity that gets created in these kind of groups. And when people feel seen and heard, and they don't feel like they're being talked down to or being therapized, Absolutely. but they're being held. Yep. It's transformative for humans. Right. Well, the, the groups that I run, the uh, the cognitive, the process group, the the, the key uh, requirement is safety. People need yes. to feel safe oh, in these groups. Yes, I totally agree. So we 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 convene these groups uh, behind a closed door. Uh, and we uh, and confidentiality is one of the rules or guidelines of the group uh, for the purpose of helping everybody in there feel safe and supported. And even people who initially are resistive, usually within a day or two, respond to the feeling of being supported and and that safety of the room, and they become uh, active participants in the therapeutic process. So there, there's no doubt about that. You. I've used the word container a lot. That's that has widespread usage right now in psychedelic research, especially therapy. And that's what it's all about. You create a safe container for people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know it's uh well it's it seems like there's so many overlaps here of of kind of how psychedelics has not only transformed your life and given you a way to make sense of some of these dark places, but it's really kind of allowed you to connect with these deep spiritual parts of you too. And uh uh, you know, I, I guess as we kind of I mean, I would love to go for a couple more hours and we'll definitely have to have another conversation because I feel like I found a really good friend in you, Tom. It's well, I, and, uh, and I and you Pat. Could I, could, yeah. I'd like to say one thing, though, sure. before, yeah, yeah. because we started with Gordon mm. Lawson, and uh, though he did not uh, actually formally call for uh, integrating psychedelics into uh, mainstream Christian religion, um, I, I wrote some things about this. I, I had a book I tried to publish that was related to these topics. Back around the year 2000, 2001, I could not find a publisher. And I think it was partly uh, resistance to the uh, idea of integrating psychedelics with uh, mainstream religion. There may have been other reasons. I don't know. But um, I I could read you a little bit. I'd love to. And is that manuscript still sitting there? Oh, yeah. Oh, Tom, we got to get you a publisher because we're we're ready for this. The world's (laughs) calling for this now. It's 2023, baby. Like, we need you. Well, let's talk. Yeah. Back then, I, I was somewhat focused in, um, Gordon had been critical of, of uh, extreme sectarians you know, amongst the religious. He was talking about, I think, uh, what we would call today the, the uh, Christian nationalists and, and these extreme far-right groups. And um, I I had hoped at that time that psychedelics, among other things, might be able to dislodge that group. So part of my uh, book at that time was sort of a rant against that that particular component. And uh, Terrence McKenna wrote a foreword for the mm. book in which he went after them too. Uh, it's 
I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to uh, to use it in the rewritten version of the book because now my focus is more on uses uh, on, on productive uses of psychedelics within Christian tradition, such as Ligare. Yes, that's the Hunt on. Priest. I've had him on as well. I did mm -hmm. an interview oh, with him. Yeah. I haven't heard that one. Oh, I'll have to send you. I'll send you the link. It was such a great conversation. So yeah, you uh, read read, read this, from this piece. Yeah, the, and this is about what I think Gordon's attitude was. Okay. So I mentioned that uh, in in the Sacred Mushroom Seeker, the fest trift I did uh, on Gordon, uh, which was published in 1990, I I wrote uh, that I'd visited uh, the 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 site of his uh, where his ashes are interred in the National Cathedral in Washington D.C. Uh, I said that uh, his final resting place was within the the Washington Cathedral was the chapel of St. Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, and I wrote, defined by the circular piers supporting the cathedral's central tower, this chapel is formed in the shape of a Greek cross. Its namesake was the saint who gave his sepulcher as a tomb for the crucified Christ. He was also the first to take possession of the Holy Grail following the Last Supper, and is reputed to have been the first Christian missionary to England, uh, quote, by his travels far antedating the later arrivals, unquote, according to the guidebook. Even had his, uh, Gordon's brother, uh, Thomas Watson, was already interred in the cathedral. Uh, he, he said, even had his brother's ashes not been interred beside this chapel, Gordon might have considered St. Joseph of Arimathea a worthwhile spiritual patron in light of his own pioneering efforts, efforts to establish a different mission, the field of ethnomycology. Um, I, I, in this manuscript, I went into that a little bit further when I, I pointed out that um, uh, Gordon wrote in The Wondrous Mushroom, well, when we first went down to Mexico, meaning himself and his wife, Tina, uh, we felt certain that we were on the trail of an ancient and holy mystery, and we went as pilgrims seeking the grail, unquote. My feeling was, in effect, they found the grail when they found the sacred mushrooms, making Watson's final resting place especially significant. I said, by having his ashes interred in a room that is accessed from the chapel of a saint who is associated with the grail, a chapel which lies at the heart of a sturdy cathedral, built to last perhaps thousands of years, he has established a de facto shrine commemorating his and Tina's quest. Wow. What a beautiful um, way to pull that all together. This, And I also yeah. mentioned just to, in conclusion, I asked his daughter, Masha Lawson, who went accompanied him and his wife to Mexico, and she herself took the mushrooms while a teenager. Uh, I asked her what she knew about Lawson's religious beliefs. And she said that he'd always claimed to be Episcopalian like his father before him, uh, who, as I said, was a priest in that denomination. Uh, and I felt that reinforced a statement that Watson had made in The Wondrous Mushroom about himself and Tina, which was this. Quote, I suppose most people would call us deeply religious, though we did not really adhere to any creed. She was a member of the Russian Orthodox Church, and I am an Episcopalian, my father having been a minister. Unquote. And Masha also told me that before his death, Gordon had asked her uh, to uh, have a choir sing the Nunc Dimittis as part 
of his uh, simple memorial service. It's uh, That's a canticle based on Luke, uh, chapter 2, verses 29 to 32, which begins, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Mm. I think adding it all up and looking at the uh, points I raised in Sacred Mushroom Pentecost, I think it's quite possible that he anticipated uh, without openly recommending it that uh, his discoveries in Mexico were going to have a productive a significance for Christianity. Yeah, I uh, what a beautiful way to kind of pull things together for us here at the end, Tom. I uh, <clears throat> I'm at this place of of just really trying to listen to spirit. And and one of the things that I, I just feel drawn into is the need to create spiritual communities that are open, uh, without fear, without a sense of judgment or, or, or you know, hell doctrines, but, but spiritual communities that can be vibrant, uh, that can be inclusive, uh, and that can be experiential so that people can encounter the divine and then have a place to be able to talk about that. And so right. that's my heart. And I think this is what our society is longing for. I think we want to move past dogma, and we've got an opportunity here to not just uh, to recreate a new kind of form of Christianity, but actually go back and reconnect with a form of Christianity that has existed in the past. This isn't right. something new. We're exactly. actually we're resurrecting something that has been lost, that has been you know suppressed. And I think this is why Brian's work, Brian Murescu's work, is so important to us. And I think your work with R. Gordon Wasson uh, and, and understanding his passion uh, for the sacred mushroom and for this work uh, and bringing in Albert Hoffman uh, and bringing, in, bringing that story uh, from the pagan continuity thesis. I, I think there's so much to be, you know, we're just at the front edge of what the possibilities are here, but mm -hmm. I'm in the trenches with real people who are who have left religion behind and are still longing for a spiritual connection in a community yes. and they're finding it through the sacred mushroom. Yes, absolutely. Well, that, that passion you just mentioned, it's clearly infectious mm. and I'm, I'm really glad to have met you and to mm. see, learn about your work. And I look forward to learning a lot more. Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's been an incredible conversation. I, and I really, I, I want to schedule another meeting with you because uh, there's so much more I can talk about. I've got another 20 questions here that we got to dive into, but this just felt really beautiful and natural. Uh, you know, thank you so much, Tom. Is there anything else you'd want to end with here before we kind of close up? Um, no, I, I think we've pretty much covered it. In the future, I, we can maybe talk to some degree about the people who kept the fires burning Ooh, yes. during that long interregnum, because it's quite a list, you know, Paul yeah. Dammitz and um, uh, Bob Jesse, I haven't yeah. talked about him yet, very mm. many, many people. Yeah. If people want to see some of your work, where's the best place for them to find your stuff? Uh, well, if if they have access to LinkedIn, I have yep. a pretty, pretty uh, detailed list of my publications, some of which you can access through links there. Okay. And um, otherwise, uh, I, I yeah, I, I should. I'm trying to find some way to post my CV, my psychedelic CV. Yeah. On. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, I know that's, uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll definitely point them to the LinkedIn. I'll put some articles in there too, in my show notes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure. 
And I just, uh, I just love the work that you and your wife have done together. Um, you know, bo both presenting, but also working in the psychiatric uh, inpatient uh, hospital. That, that to me is just a sign of where your heart really is at. You know, you really want to work with people. And when you talked about uh, the pastoral counseling that you have been part of, that really connects with me because for me, uh, I, I love the academic stuff and I love all that, but it has to kind of, it has to translate into real life, into right. real people. And I see that in your heart too. So thank you so much for the great conversation today, Tom. Thank you. Thank you.